2: Episode 102 of See Here podcast, proudly part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. It's been about four or five months since episode 101 of See Here. My apologies if you've been a fan of the show, been waiting for it to come back. Thank you very much for sticking with us. Real life got in the way. And real life is still getting in the way of my regular partners, Bernard Stickwell and Tim Merrill, but they will be hopefully back next month. Just keep a look out on the Facebook page of See Here. We will let you know. If you're a new listener to this podcast, welcome on board. And the purpose behind this show is to talk about music related films. Often we've talked about musicals, which are not really musically related films because it's got to be the narrative. But hell, it's Bernie, Tim, and my podcast. We can do whatever we like. But the original thinking behind this podcast was that we're going to talk about films where the subject matter was related to music, and we have round tables, and sometimes we have interviews with directors of music documentaries and we're going to continue doing that from time to time but this year I think we'd like to come back to a whole lot more round tables because they're fun we also try to make these discussions friendly enough in a way that even if you haven't watched the film you'll still get something out of the discussion which is my way of saying please download and please tell your friends to download I am not here by myself to talk about movies because that would be extremely boring I'm here with a long time friend of the show and I don't think she's been on the show in a while although she's been on a few episodes of Love That Album in the interim I'm talking about the film writer film blogger who hasn't added to her blog in a long time what's happening Carrie Gately Fristo? welcome back to see here
0: hi hi I'm so glad to be back
2: now I'm trying to remember what was the last film that we discussed with you and we did the Harry Nilsson film
0: film well we did the um not Robert Johnson. That was the first one. And then we did uh, Harry Nils after that. The most recent one was on your other podcast, and we did Hegera.
2: We done a few uh, music ones. So we did uh, Hegera. We did, Uh, Marion Faithful. We did Todd Rundgren. We haven't done a, a film one though in quite a while. So the film that we're here to talk about today is one that was picked by Bernie. So I'm all the sadder that he's not able to make it this time around. I would have loved to have known his thinking behind picking this one. But the film is from 1983, Tender Mercies. So what we're going to do now is we're going to go play the trailer and then we're going to come back and talk about our histories with this film and see whether Bernie made a good choice.
1: Hey,
0: mister. Were you really Max Sledge?
1: Yes, ma'am, I guess I was. (laughs) He was a star who reached for the stars and fell.
0: All she remembers about you is a mean drunk trying to beat up her mama. You're dead as far as she's concerned.
1: He was a star who reached for life through his songs but never let life reach him. When are you going to start singing again, sir? Do you love I'm not going to start singing again, son. I've lost him. He was a star who loved and was loved, yet never learned to love himself. I have a daughter. You do? She's seven or eight years older than your boy. Where is she? With her mama. Me and her mama are divorced.
0: But you all stop talking? I can't get to sleep. What the hell are you doing
1: here? I was hoping to say hello to Sue. in you right away. You stay away from her, you hear me? We stay away from her, or I warn you I'll have the law on you. Rosalie, are you jealous of Dixie Scott? <coughs> Maybe I am. Why? Well, because she's rich and famous and you used to be married to her. What happened to your money? I lost it. Al, huh? too much Applejack. What did you think about marrying me? Yeah. You're the good things I threw away Coming back to me every day You're the best it could be a man unused to tenderness yet seeking it tender mercies I decided to leave here forever let me know If you're
2: coming along. All right, welcome back to episode 102 of See Here Podcast. My name's Morris. I'm here in Melbourne, and my guest is Kerry Gately Fristo. Kerry's in Cape Cod, and we're here to talk to you about Tender Mercies. Directed by Bruce Beresford, written by the great Horton Foote, the writer of To Kill a Mockingbird, the film script, and Of Mice and Men, the 92 film version of that. Tender Mercies came out in 1983, starring Robert Duvall, Tess Harper, Betty Buckley, and when I see her, all I think of is eight is enough, Uh, (laughs) Wilfred Brimley, and a very young Ellen Barkin. The plot, as given by IMDB, is a broken-down middle-aged country singer gets a new wife, reaches out to his long-lost daughter, and tries to put his troubled life back together and as usual IMDB gives something that's approximating the truth but gives you no idea as to really what the film is about. I would have asked Bernie what his history with this film was, whether he just picked this up because it sounded like an interesting film to him or whether he actually had a history with it, but he's not here. So I'm going to ask you, Kerry, because I think when I mentioned to you several months ago when we didn't know yet that we were going to be taking the hiatus of the podcast, that we were going to be covering this, and you said, oh, I love that film. Yeah, I'll join you. So I want to talk with you about what your history with Tender Mercies is. Did you see it when it first came out? Did you see it more recently? What's the story with you and Tender Mercies and what were your original impressions?
0: I saw it ar- around the time when it first came out. I can't remember if I saw it in the theater or not. It, yeah, I, I, I definitely saw it when it first came out. It was the, I liked it because I, I, I just thought it was a, a quiet film. And I don't mean that to say that it's not saying anything, but I just liked it because it was like, it, it's a thoughtful film it gives you something to think about it doesn't crash into the screen and you don't get hit with some kind with major concepts or anything dramatically but just there's something that's always stuck with me about it it does hit on major themes but it doesn't hit it in a spectacular fashion but that's why I've always liked it and I like the cast that's what I really remembered was the fact that I really enjoyed the cast and the music I I, I like the music
2: yeah well but I'm definitely come to the use of music in this film because I even sort of saw that the types of songs that the three major characters are singing are a strong reflection of their own character. We'll come back to that So I remember the film coming out in 1983, and I remember seeing, as for it in the newspaper, I don't think it lasted more than a couple of weeks here at the cinema, Teenage Me was really not going to see a film about country music. I don't even think at the time I knew it was about country music, but Teenage Me was never going to see a quiet film like this. I was not that adventurous. At the time, and it wasn't really sold to me as a film that would have interested me. And yet, watching this for the first time a few months ago, I thought it reminded me of some films that I cherished in the late 80s and into the early 90s. Those very quiet types of films, as you put it, I mean, like, I think in. 1986, 1987, when I first saw *Ran* Midnight, the film with Dexter Gordon. I mean, that's as quiet and slow moving as it gets. And I fell in love with that film and, you know, this was only out maybe about four years before that. I'll run this by you. A film that Tender Mercies reminds me of, in a way, was Baghdad Cafe. Did you ever see that?
0: No, that's a hole in my film viewing repertoire.
2: I mean, look, it's, it's superficial in a way because the characters are very different and yet the common theme here is of the central character ends up at a motel in the middle of nowhere i mean in robert duval's case it's for a very different reason than for the lead actress i'm blanking on her name in baghdad cafe and they try to start a new life it's a very superficial connection but i guess there's something about the remoteness Of the location I mean if it had just been about people wanting to start a new life that wouldn't have really been enough but it's a lot about the look of the film as much as the circumstance of the film and that's an independent film I think that came out late 80s so in a way I'd also be saying that tender mercies maybe was a precursor to a lot of what came out in the 90s the late 80s and the 90s in independent cinema this was made by a big studio but it doesn't look like a big studio film. Right. You've already gone and made the very salient point that this is a quiet film, but it's still very significant in terms of what it has to say.
1: When are you going to start singing again, sir? I'm not going to start singing again, son. I've lost it. You don't miss singing? No. Oh, I miss something, but I don't miss a lot of it.
2: For what it's worth, so my first thought about the film after watching it, we'll explain a little bit more about the plot points as we go, those of you who haven't seen this film. Like you, I definitely thought it was a really beautiful and quiet and thoughtful film, but until I sat and thought about it, there was something that worried me about it, because I was sort of thinking, okay, there's a strong religious overtone to this film. And on the one hand look, I mean you know one of my favorite films is Ben-Hur and it doesn't get more proselytizing than Ben-Hur. I was sort of worried they're thinking is this film proselytizing? And I thought about it and thought no, it's actually not because you get one of the main characters who like she's had the church all her life. She lives in this little motel miles away from the nearest town in Texas. And that's her life. But the Robert Duval character who stumbles into her life, she brings him to church, you know, he says, Well, you know, I'm happy to take the time to do it and he gets baptized, but basically there's a line which I wanna go into a little bit further later on, but there's a line where he says, I don't trust happiness, I never have He's not the wretch that you hear about in the song amazing grace it's not amazing grace that saved a wretch like me it's not that he's not happy with his life but christianity heavy christianity isn't the answer for him anyway so the more i thought about it i thought this film it is complex there's no one answer for anyone and it even ends the film a little bit ambiguously so i thought about this i thought yeah it's it was an entertaining film but more to the point there's no simple answers If you looked at it superficially, you might think that it does give it. But truthfully, I think that this film is a lot more complex and a lot more clever than one watching will give it. And I did watch it a couple of times. Like you, I think we were discussing this before we started recording that this is a film that's possibly been forgotten about. and would like to bring back to people's attention one type of film that i've often criticized and we've talked before about music biopics like ray and walk the line and the plot there is about a famous musician who sees hard times but the love of a good woman sees him through that's another thing where this film's complexity saves it it's not complex in terms of storytelling but it's complex in terms of The themes where I think that this is a guy who'd musically sing better times. The start of the film, he's drunk and ends up in this motel. The love of a good woman could see him through as the theme of this film, but it's more complex than that. This couple, they love each other, but it's not the solution to all ill wills in his life or her life.
0: I I agree that it is much more complex. And one of the things that it you know, without giving away lots the entire plot of the film to people who haven't seen it, it's not one of those films where okay, he's broken down, and if you hadn't seen it before, you might be watching it thinking, okay, this is where he makes his comeback. You know, a lot of the biopics that I've seen about musicians would have you believe that they have this one hit or something. And then they go on this meteoric rise. And, you know, perhaps they have a downfall because once they get big, they start drinking and acting out and, you know, whatever, having issues with family, friends, husbands, wives, whatever. But that's not what this is. I mean, because it's a it's a story of there is redemption, you know, so there's, there's that theme running through it. But it, there's more than that. As you said, I don't think it's one thing that's gonna save him. I think it's a combination of things. I mean, it's himself, it's inside him. Is, safe, is what he's, he's using. He's drawing from his inner strength. But these other things are helping him. Certainly the fact that he has this lovely woman, and Tess Harper plays this really, really very nice person. You know, she's very kind. She's very supportive. She's a lovely mother. She works hard. She's just a lovely person. And she's very happy to see him doing well. You know, she doesn't have any ulterior motives or any of her own agenda or anything. She just loves him and she thinks wonderful things of him. And she, everything she says is good. She's so good, you know. <laughs> but then the religion, I think he, he does get something from that. You just hear the spirited way that he sings the psalm when they're singing the, the psalm in the church and he's singing the He seems really into it. forcing him to get baptized he gets baptized it makes his wife happy that could be one of the reasons he does it but he also seems to be interested in it so I think it's a a combination of like he's finding himself even when he goes off he gets angry and he gets in the car and just storms off and you know and he says I bought a bottle but I dumped it out it's one of those like if you're like an AA person would be into this because it's like an everyday thing something you have to fight every day you have to think every day. Okay. I'm not going to drink today. And I do think that's his redemption in a way, because Tess Harper has a little boy who's the cutest little kid and he's going to, he's, you know, shows him playing football. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to work at this. You know, I'm not just going to be sitting in there watching TV and my kid or the kid that, is de facto my kid, Get lonely and sad and doesn't have anyone to play with. No, I'm going to be a dad. I'm stepping up. So to me, I feel like he everything is, it, it all sort of gets together. You know, the, the good woman is lovely. But what really keeps him going is the work. He starts doing work. He starts doing plain work. You know, he's fixing the door and he's pumping gas and he's helping around the house and he's going to the grocery store and getting feed for the farm and, you know, all this kind of stuff.
2: See, the other thing I find interesting, it's all part of the redemptive process. And one thing I think that's worth pointing out is that unlike a lot of these other films that like to neatly pack up the redemption in a box and by the end of the film, the main character is all sorted out and he or she will have no more problems and that's all fine this film shows that it's an ongoing process by the time we get to the closing credits we realize that max sledge the robert duval character still has work to do and the other thing that we haven't mentioned yet is that part of the process is also his music because he had rejected the whole notion of being a professional songwriter before the opening credits His character was a professional singer-songwriter and he was beloved. And at the opening credits, he's down on his luck. He's in this motel. He's this other character who he's with. We never see, but we just hear this argument that they're having. And he just says,
1: Give me the bottles
2: everything that goes along the way through the film be it going to church because his wife suggested all right i'll try that continuing writing songs well okay i'll try that being a good stepfather to his new wife's 10 year old son okay i'll do that everything is part of the process and by the end of the film he's not redeemed he's just one day at a time it's realistic this is a Hollywood film that's not a Hollywood film thinks like an indie film
1: she had all the looks it takes to go with understanding ways. I was down and she was there to sympathize
2: probably for those out there who are thinking well I'm still not knowing enough about the film so I've written a couple of things here as to who the main characters are and a little bit to expand on the plot. So Robert Duvall plays Max Sledge who at the start of the film is a drunken ex-country singer who finds himself passed out drunk in a motel in the middle of nowhere Texas. Tess Harper plays Rosalie who owns the motel and allows Mac to remain there and to do chores for his board. She's a widowed mother of a 10 year old boy and has no idea about Max's previous status as a revered country singer and writer and she insists that if he stays there to work off his debt in the motel no booze and he agrees and he doesn't even try to drink on the sly. Fairly early on the film the two are drawn to each other romantically and get married and I like the fact that the film is not about their romance it's about his evolution and his evolution with her. So there's not like a one hour wait where we say, when, when are they gonna to get together? That's it within the first 10 minutes. He says, well, I guess it's no secret about how fond I am of you. And they're, they're married. we don't see the wedding, we don't see anything. It's not about the romance, it's just about them being together. So 10 minutes into the film, it's no spoiler. They declare their love for each other. Word gets out to a young band in the nearby town that Mac is running the motel or petrol station and this local band approaches to pay their respects to see if he's interested in working with them like they want to record because they revere him they think he's the greatest songwriter ever and they're going to record a record and would he work with them and he says that's not my life anymore but things evolve in the story And meanwhile, there's the ex-wife, played by Betty Buckley. She plays Dixie Scott, Max's ex-wife, who's still working as a very popular country singer. And she comes to play the local Grand Ole Opry. And Mac approaches her manager to see if she'll record any of his songs to make his life financially a little easier. And due to their acrimonious split, she's far from keen. And there's a little bit of talk about him being domestically abusive but once again that's not the theme of this film i love that horton foot has written this story things are implied but we said no i don't want that to be front and center i don't want you to get distracted by that so they don't sort of like talk for hours and hours about that he wasn't a great husband and we don't know what sort of a father he was Uh, but he just left and never got back and she's completely pissed off so that's not the theme of this film
0: we stay away from her or i warn you I'll have the law on you. All she remembers about you is a mean drunk trying to beat up her mama. You're dead as far as she's concerned, man. How you
1: been?
2: I've written down another summary of the film, an- another IMDB type summary. See what you think of this. Robert Duvall features in this film about a broken down middle-aged country singer who finds love, reaches out to his long lost offspring and tries to put his troubled life back together. That sounds like, you know... A crappy IMDb description of Tender Mercies, right? It's not. It's a description for a film that came out in the early 2000s called Crazy Heart.
0: Crazy Heart, yeah.
2: Jeff Bridges. Same story. Well, not really, but the same superficial story. And I was surprised. Was
0: the first thing I thought of, too. Right after I finished watching it again recently, I went, oh, okay. So, <laughs> Crazy Heart, yeah.
2: So, Okay, so your what are your thoughts on Crazy Heart?
0: Don't hate me. I haven't seen it.
2: (laughs) Oh, oh, sorry. I thought you'd seen it. Okay, sorry. I'll I'll cut that bit out.
0: I know what it's about, though. So it was was something that I thought of. I mean, think about it. How many films have this as a subject? They don't handle it the same way. Generally speaking, you get like a star is born, right? I mean, this story has been told a million times. You know, one star's on the rise, one star's... On the Decline, in, in those cases, you know, it was done with Janet Gaynor, it was done with Judy Garland, it was done with Barbara Streisand, it was done with Lady Gaga, and then it's been done at a number of other times when it hasn't been called A Star is Born. But it's the same basic concept. But there there has to be somebody who's down on his luck or he's totally screwed up. He's burned all his bridges. Maybe it's a substance abuse issue or he's got anger problems or, you know, it's something like that or some combination. And then he either writes something that's so beautiful that he becomes world famous all over again and he's back you know or he can't escape those demons as soon as he goes back to performing again or something he starts drinking again or whatever the his drug of choice what i liked about this is that they don't follow that pattern it starts off and if you're a person who is watching a movie thinking i know what's going to happen happen next i know what's going to happen next which isn't really me, but really don't do that very much in movies. But um, you're going to be wrong with this one, and that's what I like about
2: it. We're talking tender mercies here. You'd, you'd in tender right. mercies, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: You're not gonna, you're you're not, you're not gonna know exactly what's going to happen next and how the characters are going to react because they're not pat characters. They're not out of the character handbook. They're people, and they react sometimes stupidly, sometimes foolishly. Betty Buckley's way over the top. But she's a way over-the-top performer, too, you know? And then she's she overreacts to everything, and that's her character. But it's still not a pat character, which I liked. But yeah, crazy. it's definitely got shades of Crazy Heart and shades of a lot of those movies.
2: Crazy Heart is definitely a film where you could see what was coming around the corner. I didn't think it was a bad film. I really liked it, actually. I did word my three-line summary there to be conveniently similar to Tender Mercy's, But, you know, it is sufficiently different. I'd had this DVD on the shelf for quite a few years, and then I thought, ah, another film about a country singer down on his luck. Okay, let's watch it. And then imagine, to my amazement, that Robert Duvall is not only in it, but was one of the producers of the film. So I thought, wow, he must really like this thing about being a southern country singer. Get
0: over, you redneck bastard! And I hadn't seen it for years until I watched it again, you know, to uh, prepare for this podcast. I remembered the basic plot of it and the characters. And I, that's why I, I was excited. I was And I was excited because I remembered I, I enjoyed it. And I'll go watch anything with Wilford Brimley in it because I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and he wasn't in it enough. He, he needs to be in it more. But he still was good. He was still his primliest. But, oh, there were a couple of things that happened in the film. Like, there were small, there were details that I had forgotten because I hadn't seen it in, in quite a while. That could have gone in different ways. The daughter comes back and he's not there and she has to get some money. And I was waiting for something to happen because of that.
2: I'm going to ask you a question here. I mean, we we still haven't talked about the music in this film or the music angle really in this film, but we'll, we'll get to that. But I do want to ask one question for you. So there's this moment where he does meet up with his daughter. She searches him out. Uh, And they haven't seen each other since she was a little girl And she's now, like, whatever, 18 or something like that She's not angry with him or anything like that And she sort of suspects that her mother, played by Betty Buckler Has been poisoning the well a lot So she doesn't take everything that her mother says at face value But she does have some questions for him, you know Uh, you left years ago she says but I seem to have this recollection that you sang me a song something about the wings of a dove and you used to sing this to me when I was a little girl to put me to sleep but my mother seems to say that that never happened or you never did that but do you remember anything about singing me a song about the wings of a dove and Robert Duvall his character Max Sledge says no I don't remember anything like that and then she leaves And he stares out the window, and he just starts singing this song.
1: When Jesus went down to the waters that day, he was baptized in the usual way. When it was done, God blessed his song. He sent him his love.
2: And I'm sure there's something clever behind it, why he didn't want to confess that, yes, I did do this to you. I would sing this song to you as a little girl. Is it because he doesn't want to draw her back into his life because he still doubts himself as a good father? What do you think is behind the significance of him denying that he ever sang that song to her as a little girl?
0: There are a couple of things. I thought about that too. And I do think that part of it is... Yeah, is he doesn't want to do two things. He doesn't want to make himself vulnerable, any more vulnerable than he already is in this case. And I think he doesn't want her to be vulnerable because I think he's, like, you see how they're standing? They're very stiff. I don't, wouldn't expect them to embrace so much, but I would sort of expect them to maybe maybe have him touch her, like touch his, her arm or something. You know what I mean? Something, but don't. Oh, they stay, like, they're across the room. And I just think he wanted to keep her still at arm's length for various reasons and it could be just you know not wanting to hurt her not wanting to get hurt himself and maybe not wanting to get in trouble with his ex because she was a whirlwind you know <laughs> and but I also thought it was interesting that she didn't know the song because as soon as she started talking about the song I knew the song You know, I mean it's a pretty popular song you know so I was like how does she not know the song that didn't fly with me because because I thought all she has to do is ask anyone in the band what the song is, and they'll tell her what it is. Would not matter whether he sung it or not. The fact that she couldn't remember the lyrics of the song or whatever, because it's a really super common church song.
2: I suspect, by virtue of the fact that her mother's been out on the road singing songs like "The Best Bedroom in Town," that she's not had a very church life in years, if ever. I was Maybe you know, what might be considered a very common church song i think it's feasible that it may not have mm. necessarily crossed her path in any other form but i like your approach there and you know suggesting that he's she's sitting he's standing and he doesn't want to remain vulnerable and to maybe say yeah i sang that to you would maybe bring her closer to him and he's not ready for that yet he's still yeah. A.A., one day at a time. He's thinking maybe in the future, maybe we'll get to be close again, but this is day one. I wasn't expecting to see you one day at a time. Yeah. Everything's subtle.
1: You don't owe me anything. Besides, I've got other plans for the song right now. you got other songs, Mac? Yeah, I do. You're going to show them to me? No. Come on. No, Christ's no, sake. God damn it, Harry, don't you understand English? I don't want to show them to you. Well, why? Because I don't want to, so stop bugging me.
2: I want to digress for a bit and talk about Bruce Beresford, the director of this film. I've got to talk for a little bit about his films of the 70s, which were... I was going
0: to say Don's Party.
2: (laughs) Here's the interesting thing. How do you figure the man who went from making these films, The Adventures of Barry McKenzie... Listen, mate, I need to uh, splash the boots. You know, strain the potatoes.
1: You know, point Percy at the porcelain. I think he wants to go to the loo.
2: Barry Mackenzie holds his own. Don's party. I would not like to be in your shoes if you hit me. I'm a lawyer. I'll sue you for assault. I'm going to smash your bloody teeth in. He's a dentist. The money movers. (laughs) Breaker
1: Morant. Now these orders were issued, sir. And soldiers like myself and these men here have had to carry them out, however damned reluctantly.
2: And the club. All right. If you really want to know what's
1: going on is that I'm sick to death of football and I couldn't care less whether i never play another game in my life. It's a load of macho competitive bullshit. Football shits me.
2: Goes to making tender mercies. Now, OK, because I'm trying to prove a point here, I've deliberately gone and left out the getting of wisdom because that would say, right, well, that's a step on the way to tender mercies. But basically, like 1970s film is all about machismo. I almost tend to think that the Joe Jackson song, Real Men, should have been written by an Australian songwriter because the the themes of that now and then we wonder who the real men are. Sounds like it could have been an Australian song of the 1970s. But anyway, so these films that Bruce Beresford made that were about Australian character, really 1970s Australian cinema, both so-called serious cinema and the sort of stuff that's covered in Not Quite Hollywood...
1: Mm-hmm, is mm-hmm.
2: very much about Australian machismo, be it through tits-and-ass films, through...
0: Yeah, yeah, through fighting, drinking a lot of beer and cars.
2: The weird thing is, because I know, like me, you're, you're a fan of Wake and Fright, which was an Australian film not made by Australians, you know, written by an Englishman of Caribbean descent, directed by a Canadian, and the lead actor was a Brit. So in a way, it was a film from the rest of the world looking in on Australia, and yet often people think it's the most Australian film ever, but Australians at the time rejected it, saying, that's not us. But these films that I've just gone and mentioned by Bruce Beresford, the Barry McKenzie films, Don's Party, etc., show show that, that, no, that very much is a side of this country. And I just found it fascinating that he went from making those sorts of films to making Tender Mercies and then Driving Miss Daisy. Miss
0: Daisy, right, right,
2: yeah. But although, sorry, one, one other point I want to back is, is that apparently The Getting of Wisdom, which I you know, deliberately left out because it would contradict my point, was the, the second film he wanted to make. He wanted to make it straight after Adventures of Barry McKenzie, but he was duped into making Barry McKenzie hold his own. they said, well, we'll give you the money to make Getting of Wisdom if you make this film. And so he made a sequel, which he really didn't want to do, and they didn't give him the money for uh, getting a wisdom at the time.
0: I've seen John's Party. I've seen Money Movers. And I've not seen a Morant.
2: Oh, really? Um, wow! I you
0: know, which seems weird for me not to have seen that.
2: Get get onto that. You will love it. You will love it.
0: Yeah, I, I think I will. And then um, I've, I've seen Driving Miss Daisy. I have not seen a, The Getting of Wisdom. That mm-hmm. one I've not. But yeah, I have seen like money. I have Money Movers. I actually have it as a. I have a Blu Ray of it. I like heist films and bank robbers It's like that. I'm a big. I mean, it, it used to be during the studio system. I mean, if you think of obviously this is not a filmmaker who dealt with that so much because A, he was from Australia, so it's a totally different system but in the United States there was the studio system and you had somebody like Robert Wise who made everything. I mean, he was AD on Citizen Kane and Magnificent Ambersons. And then he made The Day the Earth Stood Still and he made The Haunting and he made West Side Story. I mean, he was all over the place because you were just a journeyman.
2: But yeah, as you say, diverse. And like nowadays, Bruce Beresford is directing opera productions. So this is a man who's hugely diverse. He wanted yeah. to tell, He's told one type of story and then another type of story. And I just love the fact that he got the opportunity to make something like Tender Mercies. It was apparently that the producers, they had the Horton Foote script for Tender Mercies. And they approached a bunch of different American directors who didn't want to do it. Now, I'm not sure whether that was because they were turned off by the religious themes or they didn't want to direct something in the South or they just didn't get the subtleties of this. Yeah. But apparently they'd seen Breaker Morant and said, we like this film. We think this might be the director for us. And so he read the script and said, okay, I'd like to spend some time in Texas, look around, see what I can do. And then he said, okay, I think I'd accept this. But Robert Duvall had final say on the director. He had to like him and Robert Duvall gave the approval. I don't think everything worked well on the set between them, but, But Duvall did approve of him overall, say, right, okay, this is the guy who will make this film. And apparently Beresford had said that the landscape of Texas, and that's the thing about the look of this film, it's gorgeous. These landscapes, he said, it reminded him of rural Australia.
0: It reminded me, like, I mean, it's not the same, but in Badlands, Terrence Malick spends a lot of time showing you where they are that they're in the midwest and it's very flat and you can see forever and it's a totally different vision you know i mean and it looks very very different cuz all of the scenes in texas in and it was filmed in Waxahachie texas it's always daylight practically it's like always daytime and it, it's like a sear. There's the grasses, there's like this much green, this like a little tiny millimeter of green. It's mostly just burnt out from the sun. So it's, everything's very pale and yellow and, you know, but you can look for miles and it's the same kind of thing. And he does linger on shots. That's the thing about this movie. It's not a long, long movie, but he spends some time lingering on the characters On their faces And on the uh, landscape Which I I thought added to The charm of the film
2: Look, I I could think it could be quite reasonably argued That if you didn't know the landscape If you didn't know the environment Then you really couldn't appreciate the character's situation this is where he is and you don't get that from a three second shot here or a two second shot there
0: or a back lot
2: or a back, yeah, definitely not a back lot but even if they had said okay we're going to film on location but it's got to be most of the time it's going to be either indoors or it's we get a like a, a quick shot of him driving down the road that doesn't tell you the environment you get these beautiful fields but you also get these fairly barren areas as well that you see in this film and really and if you don't know the environment you don't know what the MaxLedge character or rosalie is reacting to so I, I think it was such a terrific investment in film time to be able to linger on on those areas the cinematographer for the film who bruce beresford knew all too well Was uh, Russell Boyd Australian cinematographer Who's worked extensively here And extensively overseas Four of his Australian films Shows that he had a real eye For landscape And for outdoor shooting So those would be The Man from Hong Kong Which we were talking about Before we started recording Um, uh, Gallipoli uh, The Year of Living Dangerously And Picnic at Hanging Rock If that was his only film Then that qualifies him To shoot Tender Mercies
0: Yeah, that's a that's a beautiful film. But yeah, no, it's I mean, it is it is beautifully shot. And it's what's really interesting is he spends time sort of lovingly on the characters faces, the characters, especially the ones that he likes. Uh, Tess Harper and Duvall and the little boy, Sonny, who really is quite a lovely little kid. When a kid's in a movie who isn't a brat, because I really can't stand that brat kid trope in films.
2: Another reason that this film isn't predictable.
0: Yeah, because he's a lovely kid. He loves his mom and, like, when the kid comes up to, when the other kid comes up to him in the bar, when they're watching Robert Duvall play with a band, and Tess Harper's very proud and watching him perform, and then he comes and, and and I like the way he acts asks the little boy, Do you mind if I dance with your mother? And he's like, Oh no, go ahead, you know, and they go off to dance. And so another little boy walks over to talk to Sonny, Tess Harper's son and Duval's stepson, and says, Hey, do you or is that your dad? And he says, No, it's my stepdad. And he said, Oh, do you like him? And he thinks about it for a second, and he goes, Yes, I do.
2: Another film tripe subverted the boy ultimately wants to see his mother happy. He's not saccharine sweet, which this film could have very, in the hands of a lesser director, could have been. He's not a brat and he's not saccharine sweet. He's just he's just a kid trying to do what kids do at that age. And he wants to be happy. And, oh, this this guy's making my mother happy. Okay, well. And he'd never known his father. His father had died in right. Vietnam.
0: Yeah, before he was even born, you know, when his mother was pregnant. That's what I liked about him. He was a very nice kid. But he was thoughtful. Like he, you know, because just the way... They spent time with the kid. I thought that was really nice. But they also, they spent time on, and what I like about the spare script, and it is spare, because there's not a ton of dialogue, even though people are talking and there's a lot being said, it's not necessarily being spelled out. And there's a lot of show, don't tell in this movie, because as you've said, they were in the middle of nowhere boondocks texas and she owns i guess it's a motel but it's like separate cottages it's like three cottages or something and then a little gas station she was a woman by herself for at least the last 10 years so she now she at least she owns a business and even though the place it certainly isn't glamorous she's not complaining you know she's working hard and but they eat every night and they own a car and they can drive to church and they can buy groceries. I like how they didn't have her struggling and he comes to save the day. And I also like that she's not wealthy and she's not, pull, you know, helping him and giving him things. She's just a nice person saying, have you eaten? Oh, why don't you sit down? We're eating. You know, why don't you sit down and eat with us?
2: Is- no character that is a caricature. She's not a, a, a... use this word again. She's not a proselytizer. You will go to church and, oh, I need you to save me. Or is No. The, the only character who has an emotional extreme, and it's understandable under the circumstances, is Betty Buckley's Dixie Scott, the ex-wife. If I might use that as an opportunity to segue, one thing we haven't really spoken about as so much throughout this discussion is the music and we are a music film podcast so (laughs) the first time I watched the film I just thought yeah there's some interesting songs and I was sort of wondering is this really even though it's about a musician and there's quite a few songs in it is this a music film it's more about this character's arc and his relationship with these other characters a lovely character piece but then I thought about it and thought how clever it it was that they used the sort of songs that the three main characters sing to define who they are. So the three characters that we hear singing in the film, uh, Betty Buckley's character, Dixie Scott. Now, I should actually also mention that all the characters, uh, Betty Buckley is really singing, and what a voice.
0: I mean, she's a fantastic singer. She's a Broadway superstar.
2: Did not know. Ignorant me. I had no idea, but no surprise. Absolutely magnificent singer. And Robert Duvall does his own singing in this film as well. Uh, I mean, look, he's not necessarily like a showstopper, but he sings perfectly well and it suits the character. And it would have been phony to have something who was a perfect singer. He, He did what he did and he sounded great. So, yes. Betty Buckley's character, as I said, called Dixie Scott. She's the ex-wife of Max Sledge. And she's still working as a very successful singer with a band performing in theatres around operas and you know, around Texas. And she has these songs like Just No Getting Over You and this other song, The Best Bedroom in Town. And it's maybe more because of the fact that she's on a stage performing, emphasis on that word performing, and shows that her relationship to music is purely in the performance context we never see in the film we have no reason to disbelieve that she sings purely for pleasure like you know if she's folding the laundry or or uh, walking down the street just singing a song just for pure pleasure she's a performer that's what she does and this all this emotion this performance and i hate to use the word phony emotion because that's implying that She's a phony person. That's not at all what I'm trying to say. But when you get on stage, if you're acting in a play, you're performing. You're not really the character. You're playing a part. And when you're singing on stage, even if it's songs that you personally relate to, you're playing a part. So that's what she's doing. She's performing purely because she makes a living out of it music is just how she makes a living she wouldn't necessarily be singing to someone when we go down the hall we have the best bedroom in town in real life that's just something that she does on a stage that music it keeps her financially going and it keeps her and her band working so that sort of song defines who she is It's a performance tess harper's character so the woman who max sledge Meets at the motel and falls in love with and marries within the first 10 minutes. She's the antithesis of Dixie Scott. She sings in a church choir. That's what she's probably been doing all her life. You know, at one point she says to the to the reverend, uh, I was baptized in this church, you know, when I was a little girl. So she's been going to that church forever. So we can presume that she's been singing in the church choir all her life. And unlike Dixie, in, in Dixie's band, she's the front and center who you pay attention to. Unlike Dixie, she's not the center of attention. She's part of a community, be it the, the church community or the choir community, of singers that she blends in. She's not singing for financial gain, which I'm not criticizing either way. It's just what's happening here. You know, one singer does it professionally. One singer does it purely because it meets her love of music and her love of the church.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Maybe being in a choir reflects that her character just sees herself as another face in the crowd. And like in her real life at the motel, you've already gone and said she doesn't complain. It's her job. It keeps her fed. It keeps food on the table. It allows her to look after her son and live with her new husband. And she doesn't want to be the center of attention. She's just a motel out on the highway and she's singing These songs in the church choir, she's just another face in the choir. She doesn't look to be the lead soprano or anything like that.
0: Right. There's more to it than another face in the crowd. The community is the thing. Right. To to me, yeah. The community, but also it's her values. Even if you put her in a different setting, you know, I think she still would be a hardworking person who is restrained and sort of proper, you know, you see the way she dresses. It's nice. It's proper. She looks, but she she doesn't look bad or anything. She looks perfectly fine. But it, everything she has is proper. And But it is because that's the kind of person that she is. It is also the way she was raised and the community where she lives. Yeah, I mean, definitely different personalities, but also... She probably, as you said, her love for the church as well, and because she, the words that she's singing uh, mean something to her, Tess. But Betty Buckley, I would rather doubt that she writes the music.
2: It's implied that when she and max sledge were together he was the songwriting person of the team so we don't really we suspect that she's no longer singing any songs that he wrote for them there may be something in the set but she's certainly not going to take anything new on and give him any financial reward for it i mean look in both cases neither of them are singing songs that they've written you know betty buckley is doing secular and sexually suggestive songs but that's acceptable in the wider secular society. And Rosalie is singing songs in praise of God and Jesus and whatnot in the church community. And I'm, all, all I'm saying is that these songs are a reflection of their characters. And the third singer, obviously, is Robert Duvall, Max Sledge. And he falls somewhere in between the two of them because he has a past in the entertainment industry. And it led into to drink and domestic violence. He commits himself to giving up the booze and becoming a good husband and stepfather and the fame side of his life he wants to have nothing to do with that. But he still has a love for music and songwriting and he's got this big box of lyrics and sheet music. See that
1: cloud There in the sky Slowly Drifting by Well that's the word
2: She's from me. That's another thing where this film avoids the cliche, you know, because it could have been so easy for him to say, I've given up music altogether, music, secular music is evil, that's not who I am, I'm just going to sing in the church, Ra rah, that would have been a cliche and a big trope. And it's not. He just doesn't like the entertainment industry. He, he mm-hmm. knows what it led him to. Fairly early on in the film where he goes to seek out his ex-wife's manager. So would you mind giving her this, this song? I think it'd be a good song for her. And it's a secular song. But, you know, it, once again, it's, it, he's not even like saying the whole entertainment industry is evil, I want nothing to do with it. He's saying, well, you're working and it, Here's a song. You might like it. If it helps me out and my new wife out, then that'd be great. There's this no cliché tropes I, I just love it but so his, his character is a reflection of both the entertainment industry side but also the pure music for its own sake side and there's moments where he's just sitting on a bed singing a song that he's written or he's, he's singing this song to his wife he, he just loves singing for its own sake the purity of music but he realises as well that music is meant to be heard in concert halls or in churches or in buildings with other people so he does that as well once again I think that this is a good reflection of his character and the other part that we haven't sort of really spoken much about but i mentioned in the story summary was that there's a local band I don't remember if they mentioned their name but they follow him around like a puppy wow Max Lerge are you doing anything no I don't do that anymore well um, we'd love it if you uh, come and see our gig well maybe I will maybe I will or they say we've got an offer of a record contract but they said that they want you to sing the song that you've written that you gave us he's reluctant to fall back in that way of life and it'd be all too easy for it to be either he stomps and said nope you don't get my song I've got this new life or to be hey I'm doing this song hey I really really like it I'm going to fall back in that life and then maybe fall back into the booze. None of those cliches. And spoiler, not spoiler alert, by the end of the film, he's becoming more agreeable to work with these guys, but we don't know by the end of the film whether he's going to fall back in that life or not, or maybe just do the one song or not. There's no clear answers. We can be pretty confident in saying that music is always going to be a part of his life, but whether he's going to fall in with this band and say you know i'm going to give it a try and the thing is rosalie who loves him and supports him would say look if that makes you feel better then you better go do it she wouldn't stand in his way that's not no. her, not not her way to do it she just wants to make sure that he's happy and that he doesn't fall back onto the booze but yeah i like the fact that horton foot and bruce beresford doesn't resolve what he's finally going to do just the film ends with him throwing football with his stepson that's it in, a, in this beautiful field and it just shows that his redemption arc is an ongoing process and every day he'll come to a new decision as to what is right for him and what is right for his family. I love the fact that the songs in this film reflect their characters as much as the arc of the story.
0: Yeah, the band was the Slater Mill Boys.
2: Okay, not the, <laughs> not the Soggy Bottom Boys. <laughs> I'm a man. <laughs> there's no men of constant sorrow in this film.
1: They call her a hundred dollar lady I don't really know what she's worth But ever since she walked into this honky-tonk I've counted all my money wanting her
2: So let me ask you this, even though there's this scene which sort of enforces the fact that the film is not proselytizing and that is like very late in the film uh, and there's another spoiler, Max Sledge's daughter does die in a car accident. We get this moment where uh, Max Sledge, he he never shows emotion. He's almost like emotionally dead. He doesn't know how to cry and in a Hollywood big budget film he would have broken down.
1: My daughter,
2: my girl and they don't show this. hes I mean maybe he's not emotionally dead but he doesn't show it outwardly and he has this Conversation with Rosalie while he's digging in the garden. He's digging in the garden because he knows it's good for him. It keeps him active. It keeps him busy. And he says,
1: "And I prayed last night to know why I lived and she died, but I got no answer to my prayers. I still don't know why she died and I lived. I don't know why I wandered out to this part of Texas drunk, and you took me in and pitied me and helped me to straighten out, and marry me. Why? Why did that happen? Is there a reason that happened? And son, his daddy died in the war." My daughter killed an automobile accident. Why? You see, I don't trust happiness. I never did. I never will.
2: So the good and the bad. He doesn't know why any of these things happened. And he never says it's God's great plan because he's not necessarily sold on the religious aspect that she does believe in. So let me ask you this. Do you think the fact that the film intelligently doesn't go and say that religion or music or anything is a simple, easy answer to any of his problems? Do you think that this film with its themes would have been made in 2023?
0: Not the way they did it. I do think that it would be hard to make a film that isn't more black and white about I I really do. But... I will also say that I don't think his questioning, you know, why did this happen? I don't know why this happened. I don't know why I didn't die, but she did and why my life, you know, all the things that have happened. I don't think that his questioning that means that he is not religious or has not embraced or accepted the religion into his life. And I don't think that it's a new thing. My impression is that, you know, he... I'm assuming he's a Southern person. He's saying his aunt taught him to play piano, so there's a family. So I'm thinking that he probably grew up in the church. So this is not necessarily a new thing, it's a return.
2: But he's not a born-again, though.
0: Right, well, he wasn't baptized until he was an adult. The thing is, though, that I don't think everyone that's a born-again is, like, praying for the rice to cook. I don't think they pray for everything. And everyone who's religious isn't like constantly talking about their religion all the time. And I think that's a mistake that people make in films where they have Southern people. And having lived in the South for many years, I'm not Southern, but my husband was. And you're either not religious or you're incredibly religious. Well, there certainly are incredibly religious people. But there are also people who just live a nice life. I mean, as much as Tess Harper is definitely a religious person, she also just lives a good, good life. She's certainly not proselytizing anyone. She is truly Christian in the definition of the word. You know, she's very forgiving and she's very non-judgmental. I just what a lovely character. <laughs> and that was like her first major film. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, it's very interesting. One of the things that I thought was really about that year too, I was looking at like who won the Oscars, and Duvall won Best Actor, and then Horton Foote won Original Screenplay. It was nominated for the song, but it didn't win. Beresford was nominated for Best Director, he did not win, and it was nominated for Best Picture, but instead it was. This was the year of Terms of Endearment. And so Terms of Endearment won a lot of stuff. Yeah, Robert Duvall won the Golden Globes too. And it was nominated for a bunch of stuff. The song was nominated, the over you, the one that Betty Buckley sang. One who- It's interesting to see who he beat out, though, because um, that year was uh, Michael Caine was nominated for Educating Rita. Tom Conti was nominated for Ruben Rubin, which I've seen, but I cannot remember. And then both uh, Tom Courtney and Albert Finney were nominated for The Dresser.
1: I think we set out to make, make a, a, a film, a very truthful film, a very good film. I think Bruce Beresford, Horton Foote, The Hobles, EMI should all be commended very wonderful job that, that they did in putting this film together. I think it's a valid film, valid enough that we have gotten very much applause of a certain kind from certain members of the country western community, such as my friend Johnny Cash, Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, and this is certainly a very high level of criticism coming from those people. And if I didn't have that on one hand, I would feel that this on the other hand was not complete. But the combination of both tonight make this, makes this a very complete An exciting evening for me
0: tonight. And I want to thank the Academy very much for this award.
2: So we've been speaking for a while about this. Uh, Any final thoughts?
0: Well, I would really recommend it if you haven't seen the movie. Even though we talked about it and we talked about things that happened, it's sort of spoiler proof because it's a very pleasant movie. The characters, they have a great deal of interest, and they're not one-notes. They're not one-dimensional. Even the smaller parts, like you see Wilford Brimley, who has a smaller part as Betty Buckley's manager. He's trying to be a friend to Duval because it seems like they have, they go way back. But also he's the sort of he's, listen, he's the shoulder for her to cry, for Betty Buckley to cry on as well. Plus he's you know doing business with her and helping her get gigs and, and all that sort of stuff. He tries to give him money when he, he says, "Well, I'm going to take this song. Brimley says he's going to take the song that Duval wrote. I'm going to take it to Nashville and I'm going to pass it around and see if someone else would be interested in performing it." And he writes him a check. And he hands him the check, and he's like, "What's this for?" And he's like, "Well, you know, it's a you sort of on spec, you know. I'm going to give you this check to be in good faith, so that you know I'm not going to cut you out of the situation here." And then he's kind of when when Duval says, "No, no, I, you know, I don't want to do that. Plus, I think I have plans for this song anyway." And then he ends up doing it with the Slater Mill Boys. When he gets the money back, you see Brimley's face. He's kind of like surprised i I thought that was a good character and then then the kids that are in the band even the small part that they have is interesting you know they have personalities and they're you know and they're joking around but they're super respectful and like when he buys the feed one of them just naturally picks up the big bag of feed and (laughs) carries it it for duval and
2: the other line in the film that just follows that scene while they're sort of discussing they're walking through the street with the bag of feed and discussing whether or not he'll record a song with them, is that passerby who says,
1: Hey, mister,
0: were you really Max Sledge?
1: Yes, ma'am, I guess I was.
2: He's not rude to her, like he could have been, you know, get off my case, I'm not the... He says, well, yeah, I, I guess I was. That was a part I played. Now I'm Max Sledge, father, husband... I may return to music, but I'm not going to be the megastar that you once knew me for. I like the fact that the story deals with the idea of fame without ever having to show us its high points and low points. It's more like, here's the aftermath. All the things that another film, you said show, don't tell, but I think here it's tell, don't show. We don't see the big high points of fame. We don't see his descendants into alcoholism. We don't see him becoming physically abusive. All that story, that's in the past. We get little bits of exposition, but they don't lay it on thick.
0: Well, that's what I meant. They do it in in some very. I mean, Foot is a genius, and then also Beresford. You know, the the combination of the writing and the and the direction tells a story without like let's spell everything out. Eddie Buckley is very successful and rich. Well, I mean, I see her big giant house with her marble floors. And it's really tacky, but <laughs> but she's got a ton
1: of money, you know.
2: <laughs> it's just a fact of the story.
1: Baby, you're the only dream I've ever had that's come true. There's so much more to reach for
2: thanks to you. Okay, that concludes our discussion of Tender Mercies and you can get the impression that Kerry and I are both big fans of this film and it's showing on Prime if you want to be able to watch it that way Uh, or if if you walk back through time and you might find an old VHS video library that's still got a copy because I do remember seeing the video cassette being available in my old VHS library but just never picked it up and thank you Bernie for picking this and I'm sorry that you weren't able to join us for this conversation but you said go ahead and do it anyway I really really would have loved to have known what he thought but I'm super super glad that you agreed to be on this and we're happy to talk about it, Carrie, because I I really enjoyed this conversation. I, I I really, really like this film a lot. I'm so glad that it's now in my life and envious that you had it in your life a long time ago. I'm so glad that I was able to ask and say, yeah, I love that film. Yep, yeah, I'll talk. Before we sort of go into what's happening next month, let's just, I want to ask you, what's happening with you film-wise? Because Prowler needs a jump. Your <laughs> fantastic blog is looking a bit... The, the, the tumbleweeds are running through it. Haven't seen a new article. What, what's going on? You, you writing, you doing anything film-related at the moment?
0: Not really. I mean, watching them.
2: <laughs> oh, good. Well, that's a good thing. Let's talk about next month. Now, next month, I'm hoping that Tim and Bernie come back. Don't know. But even before I knew that they weren't coming, I reached out to you and said, hey, you were so gracious enough to come on and talk about a film that we'd suggested. So I said, come back next month and talk about a film that you suggest, that you bring to us. So you have a pick for March of 2023. So what have you got? Have you got a disco movie, uh, uh,
0: <laughs> a <laughs> yes, heavy metal a, movie? it's a disco movie. I, I, you picked it. You called it. And it's a very famous disco movie, Coal Miner's Daughter.
2: <laughs> right. You can't... Hang on. Wait, What? <laughs> <laughs> we, we might go on a country movie binge over the next few months, I think. <laughs> but yes, Coal Miner's Daughter with Levon Helm, Sissy Spacek. She's so good
0: in it, too. I mean, I just think she's fantastic in it. And so is Beverly D'Angelo as Patsy Cline.
2: So huge thanks if you've listened this far. Once again, huge thanks for uh, jumping back on board with C here. Unless it's your first time, thank you even more for... Uh, taking a risk and checking us out for the first time my name is Morris I'm joined by my guest co-host Kerry we have two other guys uh, Bernie and Tim who I'm hoping will be back eventually but real life doesn't necessarily account for it so we'll just keep going doing this on the side I know both of them are quite happy for us to keep rollicking along like this so yeah let your friends know if you've enjoyed this discussion it's music adjacent we are lucky to be part of the pantheon podcast music discussion network so definitely there's a music element to this story uh, but we discussed a whole lot of filmic related stuff but maybe you like film discussions but we will always keep it music related music adjacent and we're going to be bringing in some more film directors to talk about their music documentaries over the course of the next few months go back through the archives see here podcast.blogspot.com or just look for C here, S-W-E-H-E-A-R, in any of the usual places that you download your podcast. If you like the show, please let your friends know. If you don't like the show, please let your friends know let them make up their own mind. That's it for the moment. So thanks very much again, Carrie, and look forward to your company again next month. Check out any of the other great podcasts in the Pantheon Podcast Network. We'll see you next month. All the best. Cheers. Bye. No.
1: This man can be Before I start If you just hold The letter Baby I'll climb To the top If you just hold The letter Baby I'll climb